0: Dennis and Elsie Kinlaw served Jesus side-by-side for over 50 years. They lovingly opened their home to countless students, missionaries, and hungry-hearted seekers. Their love for Jesus and for each other drew scores of people into the family of God. We hope you sense the hospitality of God as you listen. Turn with me to the fifth chapter of Joshua first part of this chapter, and it is a pivotal uh, place in the book of Joshua. Now when all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings along the coast heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites until we had crossed over, their hearts melted, and they no longer had the courage to face the Israelites. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the Israelites at Gibeath Ha'erolot. Now, this is why he did so. All those who came out of Egypt, all the men of military age, died in the desert on the way after leaving Egypt. All the people that came out had been circumcised but all the people born in the desert during the journey from Egypt had not. The Israelites had moved about in the desert forty years until all the men who were of military age when they left Egypt had died since they had not obeyed the Lord. For the Lord had sworn to them that they would not see the land that he had solemnly promised their fathers to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So he raised up their sons in their place. And these were the ones Joshua circumcised. They were still uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. And after the whole nation had been circumcised, they remained where they were in the camp until they were healed. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the place has been called Gilgal to this day and the Hebrew root G-L-L means to roll, so Gilgal is a means to roll. On the evening of the 14th day of the month, while camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. The day after the Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened bread and roasted grain. The manna stopped the day after they ate this food from the land, and there was no longer any manna for the Israelites, but that year they ate of the produce of Canaan. Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you're standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Pray with me. Lord, we don't believe it's ever an accident when we get into places or any context where we hear the word of God. Because we know that you, are pulling every string you can pull to get us where we are confronted with the full claims of the gospel of Christ, the full claims of Scripture upon our lives. So you brought us here to speak to us in terms of our understanding, in terms of our commitment, in terms of our obedience, in terms of our faith. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. And let us hear tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been talking about the fact that uh, God in relation to his world and in relation to all of human history loves his world and that what he really wants to be is the fulfillment of that name which is given to Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. No person's life is complete if God is not with him. No organization is complete if God is not with that organization. No day is complete if God is not with that day. Because that's supposed to be the character of life in God's creation. God with us. It's interesting how He loves us. And the amazing thing is, to me, that He loves the human form, or the human person, or the human nature. You decide what language is good to c- communicate and seal down what we're thinking. It's interesting to me that in the womb of the Virgin Mary, the second person of the eternal Godhead Took a condition exactly like yours. And it was a limiting condition. For God to become a human being meant limitation. Now, I can't answer all your questions on that. (laughs) You can ask, you can raise questions I can never answer, but the reality is that the second person of the eternal Trinity wedded himself to human form for the rest of eternity. Now, you get complications because how do you talk about the rest of eternity? (laughs) It isn't eternity unless it's total, but somewhere or other, our language fails us at that point. But God decided to become one of the creatures among us without giving up his deity. And so you get this wedding. Now, he took, it's interesting, he made us in his own image, and then he took our image. So... uh, There is an early church father who said that divinity took on humanity so that humanity might take on divinity. Now, I'm scared of that language. (laughs) Uh, I'm scared of it because you and I are never going to be divine. But uh, he said that what he was trying to get at in his language was just exactly this. We were made in the image of God, and then God took on the image of man in the second person of the Blessed Trinity. Now, you know, that's not the way I thought about the relationship between God and man for a long time in my life. I saw God as the sovereign, you know, Lord, judge, sitting on the throne, watching to see me make a mistake so he could zap me and, you know, make me feel the proper distance between me and him. In fact, or between him and me, if you'll let me correct my grammar. But nevertheless, you notice, the way I was in those days, the me was the first person in my life. And so uh, here is the one who was a threat to me. But now here is orthodox, basic, biblical Christianity that the second person of the Blessed Trinity took a form so that when you see him, he will look like a human being and you will see the scars in his hand and the scars in his brow which means he's going to have hands and he's going to have a brow. Now, I don't know what resurrected hands are like. So you you can raise all sorts of questions. And I don't know what a resurrected form is going to be like, but whatever your resurrected form is going to be, God is going to share in that thing. So, you know, when that began to come home to me, it began to awe me. God made us a whale of a lot bigger than I thought he did. And God likes us a whale of a lot more than I thought he did. And that doesn't mean that you can condone sin for one second or that you can condone arrogance in a human being for a second. But that's just the biblical story, the incredible story of the incarnation. Now, uh, he likes us and wants proximity to us. So he left heaven and came to Bethlehem and lived among us. And he's coming back. And when he's coming back, he's going to live with us, and we're going to live with him. And the final picture that you get is, you know, I read first, I read Revelation 320 for years. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. I thought that's incredible. God living inside me, God living with me. Then he says, to him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne. Which means, do you know that every one of us, if we're born again believers, walk with Christ, we're headed for that kind of position? You know, when you deal with a human being, you're not dealing with a cheap thing. There's almost a sense in which any time you pass by one, you ought to tip your hat. Because it's a creature of God and it's a creature with eternal potential and ultimately, very high status. Now, that's no credit to us, and it doesn't take away our sinfulness that has to be dealt with, but it simply is an indication of his love and his grace that he can prepare us for that kind of communion and fellowship with him. Okay? Apparently, he wants proximity with us. He wants to get close to us, Uh, but we don't reciprocate on that. We misunderstand his movements toward us. We're afraid of him. We want to protect our own interests. And so we build a wall where we ought to build the biggest bridge we could ever build to get him to come to us. But we build the walls to separate ourselves from him, and that's our sinfulness. We want distance from him, and we want separation from him. All you've got to do is look at America politically, but you can look at individual lives as well. So God has work to do to get one, a family, Abraham. And he says, I'll give you a son. 25 years before he got him, but he got him. I'll give you a son. Out of that son will come a progeny. To that progeny, out of that progeny will come a nation. To that nation, I will give a land. And you remember they went down into Egypt, and then he brought them out. Now you get to the book of Joshua, and he says, that people that I have redeemed and brought out of Egypt now, they have to have some real estate. And so Joshua is God making a bid to get some turf, as we said, for his own people and uh, a land for them, a foothold, a beachhead in our world. Now, I don't know about you, but let me tell you the way my mind works. You see, I'm old enough to remember the Second World War, but I can remember when the last Allied troop was chased out of Europe. The ones that weren't chased, didn't get out, were captured. And so Charles de Gaulle ended up in London. And so there was not an allied troop, not a French, you know, or an American, any of these. There were no allied troops on the continent of Europe. And there was that channel in between. And uh, that's what happened in the fall. God was banished from his own creation. And then how did he get back? Let me tell you, the, the uh, Axis forces didn't welcome us. And, you know, we don't welcome God when he comes back. So they shot a lot of our people on Omaha Beach. And when God came back to his own creation, we crucified him. Now, that's the picture. And so, but now he is after in Joshua a bit of turf, and so he claims it. And so you've got the land of Israel, the people of Israel, and the land of Israel still there. Now, I don't know about you, but uh, but do you remember the story about Malchus's ear? You remember when uh, Peter pulled his sword and clipped Malchus's ear off? You remember where? When Jesus took it up and put it back, you remember where they took Jesus? They took Jesus to Malchus's boss. Now, it may well be that Malchus was the head of Caiaphas's delegation to arrest Jesus. He was the high priest's servant. And it's amazing the detail in that story. We not only know that Peter swung his sword, but we know what he hit. He hit an ear. But the astounding thing is we know which ear he hit. And we not only know which ear, but we know the name of the guy who's, who, uh, whose ear he hit. And we know what his job was, and we know who his boss was, what his boss's name was. So after they, Jesus put the ear back on, they took Jesus to Caiaphas, Malchus' boss. And you can imagine Caiaphas looking down at Malchus and say, Well, Malchus, how did it go? because they were scared to death. Malchus says, well, we we got him. Well, did you have any problem? Well, just a little one. What do you mean you had a little problem? Well, you know that big fisherman? He swung his sword and cut a fellow's ear off. Malchus said, who's here? Malchus says, mine. Typhus said, Malchus, you got two ears on now. Malchus said, that's the problem. Do you really think we ought to kill him? Now, you know, uh, I've come to the place where I see things and I say, Malchus is here. And the beautiful thing is they're everywhere. You know, uh, take, for instance, I read the New York Times when I can find it. They don't sell it in my town. But I pick it up and read it and it's a, it's an it's hostile to most of the things that are sacred to me, you know. And so I thought, wouldn't it be interesting? Do you suppose God could ever get a witness to himself in the New York Times? And then it dawned on me, there's one there every day. And it's on the front page, and it's in the second line. And you know what it is? It is the record of Bethlehem. It's the date. You know, I love all this discussion. I never can remember whether it's k 2 Y YY2K, or whatever it is. But you know, this thing about the... 2000 and, uh, we got to do something about our computers. You suppose anybody ever asked what the two is for? But did you know the two is a mouth as his ears? They're everywhere. The evidence is the traces of God in his creation. And we roll right over them because we're hostile to these. We don't want to have anything to do with them. And so we ignore them. But now, uh, So God deserves a bit of real estate in his own world. And Joshua tells us about how he got it. Now he says, not only a bit of real estate, but a people. And what kind of people? We talked today about the fact that they are to be a kingdom of priests and they are to be an holy nation. Now a kingdom of priests does not live for itself. A A priestly kingdom, a priest lives for other people. So here you have a whole kingdom that does not exist for itself. It exists for, for others. And so that's the way God conceived Israel. And that's the way God conceives the church. That's the reason a church without a missionary budget is incredible, unbelievable. It is not a Christian church from the standpoint of God's purposes for the church. Because a, uh, uh, a priest is one who lives for someone else. And so, Now he's got a people. They do not live for themselves, and they play a mediatorial role. They are intercessors. They stand between. And they get their significance from standing between, so that their significance is given to them, not by themselves, but by the people between whom they stand. And so that's what the church is supposed to be, because God has put us here to be a kingdom of priests so the world can know about our Father who's in heaven. Now, and that people has the signature of God on them. It has the mark of God on them. It has the name of God on them. And uh, that's what it means when it says, a kingdom of priests and an holy nation. His character, what marks him is supposed to mark them. There is supposed to be something about a person washed in the blood of Christ that when you know him, there'll be something in him like, the one in whose blood he's been washed. Now, have you ever gone back and looked at the Old Testament to see what they did to make a man a priest, to prepare him for a priestly role? Let me just quickly run through. If you want to study it more in more detail, you'll find it in Exodus 29. But the first thing is he wore special clothes, special garments. And uh, uh, he could not serve if he did not wear the priestly garments. Now, that is the counterpart to what, you know, the hymn, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before his throne. We to serve as mediators between a world without God and a world that needs God a world that wants God and doesn't know what it wants. That's the horrible thing. A world that wants God and doesn't know what it wants, thinks it wants something else. We stand between and we're supposed to be dressed in his righteousness to where the righteousness of Christ can be seen through, b- because of us. All right. They took an oil and anointed them. Now that oil anointing oil is symbolical in the Old Testament of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. What happened to the church at Pentecost when the spirit of God descended upon them and suddenly the church was turned inside out and a church that a few hours before had locked the door of the upper room to keep the priest the uh, priest the temple police from finding them and arresting them now they unlocked the door and poured out into the streets and began to witness about Christ. And a total reversal took place because of that anointing of the Spirit. And so the oil was poured on the priest. Now the symbolism there is what I was trying to get at this morning, the difference between what we do and what he does. You remember that text in Zechariah uh, 4 where he says, Not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, saith the Lord. It is a text on Christian service, service to God. Of course, in that day, you couldn't call it Christian. It was before Christ had come, but it was service to God. It's interesting that those two words, not by might nor power, koach and chayel in Hebrew, are representative of all human gifts, whether it's oratory, facility with language, good looks, Great voice, tremendous personality, incredible singing ability or music, you name it. High IQ, human sensitivity, you can take all of human gifts and all of human resources and they're covered by those first two words, not by might nor by power. Because you see, what God wants to do is something that you take the best we've got and we can't do it. But if you link what he has, the spirit, with what we have, he can do the miracles. He can do what only God can do. And what the world needs is what only God can do. You know, uh, could I take time to stop and tell a story for a minute? I don't know. Uh, I, you know, I, I love the fact that Jesus loves stories. It gives me an alibi for uh, for my love for some of them. but. Uh, I got to know an old Methodist preacher here in the mountains. He was an incredible preacher. Little run of a guy, dried up looking prune. Uh, I knew a Methodist preacher in a major city in the United States who heard about this great preacher and wrote to him and invited him. And he had to go in those days by train. And when he got off the train, the pastor who uh, kept looking for the distinguished preacher and doctors walked right past him. And finally, he kept pushing around till he said, Got somebody to locate Doctor, and he took one look, and he said, my God. I mean, that's the kind of person he was. And his frail, little, he was a little tiny guy, looked like a dried-up prune, one of the greatest preachers I ever heard. Well, he was invited to preach at Asbury College for a commencement. He said, I was a young preacher, and I was very flattered. He said, I had a bit of a gift for our auditorium, so I worked like fury. I got all ready, and so he said, I went. He said it was a magnificent day. He said, uh, the Hughes Auditorium was packed. High spirit. They introduced me and I began to preach. He said, I came to my peroration. <laughs> I'd never heard a man, I'd never heard of a peroration before. But it's an oratorical term. And he said, I was about halfway up. Now, I don't have to explain that to you, do I? But he was about halfway up in his peroration when he said, Suddenly it dawned on me, I had that crowd in the palm of my hand, and I could play with it the way a marion, a puppeteer does a marionette. He said, It struck terror to my soul. He said, I began cranking down as fast as I could, hoping I could quit without anybody in the crowd knowing I quit before, before I finished. He said, I went to my room and got on my knees and said, God, if you'll forgive me, I will never, ever, ever be guilty of that again. Now, human ability is a wonderful thing, but it will never replace the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And so the priest was a person. He dressed differently, had different attire, and he had a different power in his life. Now, the third thing is, he had his sin covered. He had he, There was a bull sacrificed, and the blood, was placed on him to cover and to cleanse him from his sin. And then he presented a burnt offering. He offered a ram as is a whole burnt offering, which arose as a sweet-smelling savor to God. Now, isn't that interesting? Different garments, righteousness. He lives differently. His outside's different. And his outside's different because his inside is different. And he's got the anointing spirit on him, which enables the inside to be different. His sin has been taken care of, and his attitude is one of praise and adoration to God. He loves him, and he wants to offer his life to God in burnt offering. And then they killed another ram. and they took some of the blood, and they put it on his right ear. Isn't that interesting? I don't have to explain that to you, do I? They took some of that blood, and they not only put it on his right ear, but they put it on his right thumb. And they took some of it, and they put it on his right big toe. Now, you know, moderns read that, and they don't know what to do with it. But to me, it's magnificent. You know, we listen to everything in the world but God. He wants me to get to the place where this ear is cocked to him. He's got a corner on it and a claim on it. And its main function is to listen to see what he's saying to me. Right thumb. I don't hold anything he doesn't want me to hold. I don't live this way, I live that way. And he's free to take what he pleases and free to put what he pleases into that hand. And then the big toe. We walk in the light as he is in the light. We have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And do you know the most important word in the Old Testament for relationship to God? It is the word W-A-L-K. I dare you to read the book of Genesis. Then read the rest of the Old Testament. It is a matter of walking with him. Now that's companionship. That's fellowship. You're not living by an abstract code, you're living by a person. And you keep in fellowship with him. Now, uh, I can't see him. But I know he's there. Because he came to me one day. And I think most of you know what I mean. He came to you. And when you walked away from whatever it was, you knew you were not alone. Now, there are times in my life when I've gotten so busy, I've looked around and I couldn't find him. And he says, that's right, you left me. <laughs> now, get your ear back to where it hears. Get your hand back to where it's holding what it ought and get your toe going where it ought to go. And you find he's with you because he wants to work, walk with you and to talk with you. The creation, the climax, God came down in the cool of the day to walk and to talk with his creature. And the key word in Abraham's life is, and Abraham walked with God. And you and I are supposed to walk with him. Okay. Now, it is, uh, that's that's what the priest is. He's a person who now is centered on God and related to him and lives his life in terms of others. Lives his life in that between state between God and a world that needs him. Maybe a father whose family, maybe a mother whose children, it may be a businessman whose people in his, in his, in his work, or where he works in his, in his plan. It may be a pastor in his church, but all of us are supposed to be in between people. And we're supposed to find great, great joy in that in betweenness. And you know how easy it is for us to make grace something that comes this way instead of comes this way? I don't know. I can't do that very well. But uh where it comes through us to those that are about us. Okay. Now, the Hebrews missed that. And because they missed it, they were shut out of the promised land. Do you know the expression that's used in the Bible to explain why the Hebrews never got in? Only only Caleb and Joshua got in. If you will look at uh, two or three of the most important chapters in preparation for Joshua, they're in Exodus 32, 33, 34. And they're in the story of the golden calf. And the problem that Moses had with that and how he went back and uh, how he dealt with it and how God dealt with him. And G- Moses said to God, who's going to go with us? And God said, I can't go with you because you're too stiff-necked. You're too stiff-necked and you're too rebellious. And Moses said, if you're not going to go, I'm not going. And so God says, okay, my presence will go with you. Now, listen to me. This is in 34. Do You know what the Hebrew says? The Hebrew says, my face will go with you. I want to know if the face of God goes with you. You know, a face is an incredible thing. (laughs) A voice is a magnificent thing. But you know, faces sometimes can can talk louder than voices. And sometimes they can talk much more tenderly than voices. You understand me? Now, what God is after is a relationship that is so intimate that your relationship to Him is based on His face. And you know where you see the face of God? You see it in Jesus Christ. And He wants me to live so that every day I can see the lineaments or sense the lineaments of His face and how He reacts to me. And so I can can walk in the light as He is in the light. Now, that's the intimacy that God is after. And in Deuteronomy, Exodus, Deuteronomy, In preparation for Joshua, he says the reason this group didn't get in and you and Joshua and you Caleb did is because they're stiff-necked. Now, let me hold you for a minute on that. This morning we were talking about the biblical definition of sin as each turning to his own way. So there's a sense in which, you see, in the garden Adam and Eve did this. And then they couldn't get them back. And he says, that's what you've done. Now, are you hiding your face from me? Because there's something to be seen that you don't want me to see? You know, it's a very different thing with Elsie and me when she looks me straight in the face and I look her straight in the face. Have you ever been guilty around your wife? But when there's no guilt there there's that openness between that's what God wants between me and himself through his spirit you see and so it's laid down now uh how do you get that stiff neck straightened out? It takes a uh, divine surgery and you know what the symbol is now uh I want to talk uh, almost... When he wrote his second volume of his systematic theology, he said, if you find anything original here, you know I was wrong. I believe that with all my heart. But, you know, the mark of the believer in the Old Testament was circumcision. So that circumcision in the Old Testament is what baptism is in the New Testament. Now, uh, I've read all the commentaries I could find about trying to find something on circumcision. You know what they tell me that well, other people did this, so they borrowed it from other nations and so forth. Let me tell you, the Old Testament is incredibly unique when you when you really get down to it in terms of the ancient world. It's not a copy of what goes on around now. There are some things that are copies because uh, murderers and saints both eat three times a day normally, so there's some similarities. But uh, nevertheless, there are marked differences. You see, well. Now, why was the mark that you belonged to God in the Old Testament where it was? And why was it on a man and not on a woman? Did the women not belong to God? Of course they did. You see, in the Old Testament, there was no such thing as an old bachelor. Did you know there's no Hebrew word in the Old Testament for an old bachelor? That was inconceivable. So they didn't even have a word for it. In fact, there is no term for an old maid. Now, I'm going to say some things that you can argue with, and I can't answer your questions. But you know, there's some things worse than polygamy. I used to get all embarrassed because of polygamy in the Old Testament. If you've got a culture where no woman is safe unless she's married, polygamy is infinitely better than leaving a woman out there alone to suffer at the hands of the rest of society. You think that might be ever applicable in our world? If it is, it'll be an indication of how far we've fallen from God. But nevertheless, what was the mark that you belong to God? It was at the point of union between a man and his wife. Because do you know what the Supreme...
1: Metaphor
0: for our relationship to Christ is, how'd human history begin? Church service? Political meeting? How'd it begin? It began with the wedding. How does human history end? It ends with the marriage supper of the Lamb. How did Jesus begin his public ministry? Do you know I was 40 years of age before I got up the courage to preach on the wedding at Cana of Galilee? Because I didn't know what to do with it. I thought, how stupid to begin the redemption of the world with a social event and use the power of God to make refreshments. And a southern prohibitionist, what was I going to do with that? So I never preached on it. And I had an Englishman. He leaned against the pulpit and says, the Bible teaches the rightness of short courtships. We had about 30 young people in the crowd. I thought, wait a minute. He said, you see, my text tonight is on the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. You see a guy walking down one side of the street in Cana, girl coming up the other. He looks across, likes what he sees. She doesn't object, and three days later, there's a wedding in Cana of Galilee. Now, you know, that sort of shook me up, so I went back to look. You know what the three days comes from? It doesn't have to do with the courtship of the couple. You know what it has to do? Is how quick the wedding at Cana of Galilee was in the ministry of Jesus. It was the first week of his ministry. He began with a wedding. Now, it began, history begins with one, ends with one. In the middle it begins, you get it. And do you know the greatest metaphor in the Old Testament for Israel's relationship to God? If you've never read it or studied it, carefully look at Ezekiel 16. And what it tells about is, God looks at Israel and says, your mother was an Amorite and your father was a Hittite. And when you were born, they didn't want you. And so they took you and they threw you into the wilderness and left you to die in your blood. And God says, Yahweh says, I came along and I saw you in your blood and I took you and bathed you, fed you, nurtured you, clothed you and provided a home for you and let you grow. And when you became a beautiful young lady, at the time of love, I laid my cloak across you and claimed you for myself, my bride. Let me ask you what that does to human sexuality. You see, I don't think that some guy came along one day and said, you know, this is interesting the way a male needs a female and a female wants to respond to a male. You know, that's almost like the way God feels about us. Who invented sexuality? wasn't the commentators or the preachers. And you know, the interesting thing is I've never met anybody who wasn't male or female. Isn't that awesome? And the Genesis says when we came from his hand, that's the way we came, male or female. Now, do you know what I think he did? I think my maleness is a is here. I think your femaleness is, Malchus is here. God says, I'll write it into your physical being so that you will understand the kind of relationship I want with you. Now, what is a marriage relationship? It's total. It's awesome how total it can be. (laughs) It's not only total, but it's permanent supposed to be, until death us do part. And it's unconditional. You don't come to the end of a marriage ceremony and say, now here are the conditions, and if you don't don't keep these, we're not going through with it. It's total. It's forever. And no conditions attached. It's an act of faith. Faith. Now, you know, that's the best illustration of the kind of relationship God wants me to have with him I know. You know, I never... You you read the Old Testament. Read Jeremiah. You know, it's interesting. We think the Old Testament is law. Do you know you have to get to the seventh chapter of Jeremiah before you get any reference to law? But you know what you have up to that point? Reference after reference after reference to marriage. He says, you've been unfaithful to me. You're spiritual adulterers. And isn't it interesting that in the scripture, when you look at the word adultery, you have to look to see whether it's talking about idolatry or adultery. You have to look to see whether it's talking about a man's relationship to his wife or a man's relationship to God. But when you see the word idolatry, there's never any question. It is always about a person's relationship to God. So what you've got in human marriage, in human sexuality, is a parable of something greater. It's a metaphor. And so, you know, uh, I've thought about when Elsie and I got married. Uh, you know, God's interested in marriages. Do you know that? Stand this because you come from another world. But I've crossed culture in my lifetime. You see, when I went to college, I had one suit. Now, don't pity me. I was better off than a lot of my buddies (laughs) because I had a coat. (laughs) It was an old herringbone tweed suit. (laughs) And uh, so on Sunday, I had a jacket to wear. Where were the neckties? Well, I didn't have to wear leather. Uh, I had a suit jacket instead of, you know, leather jacket or something else or a sweater. So when we graduated from college, back about 20 years before the flood, I looked at Elsie and I said, now we're engaged. We're going to get married. But I can't get married now. I don't even have a dark suit. And I know enough about your father that he's not going to let you get married in Broadway Methodist Church and connected to New York with me in a herringbone old wet tweed suit that's four years old. And so she said, no, he, he won't approve of that. So I said, Lord, what do I do? There was a guy canceled a revival meeting in a Quaker church. I was a seminary student. And the daughter of the pastor was a student at Asbury. And she came to me. I was 20 years old. And said, would you be willing to preach for a week? No, for two weeks for my father and his Quaker church. I had six sermons. And she pushed me and people around me said, Yeah, you ought to take that. So I went. I got there and I'd said to them, I'll be willing to preach every night for two weeks. Or beginning on Tuesday night through two weeks. When I got there, that stepped off the ferry in Portsmouth, Virginia. The pastor looked at me and he said, Now, nah, You don't have to do it tonight, but we've scheduled a service and I'd love to have you preach tonight. So by 10 o'clock that night, I used one of my sermons. We got to the parsonage and sat down to eat. Uh, And he looked at me and said, Now I have an 8.30 radio broadcast in the morning and I'd love it if you'd speak. There went number two. And on Tuesday night went number three. He said, And now we've scheduled morning services every morning at 1030. And I'd appreciate it if you'd preach. So do you know, by the time I was supposed to start, I'd already preached half of my sermon material and had 12 days to go. Now, you don't believe in miracles, but I know that miracles occur. It was one of the most fruitful 12 days I ever spent. It was in the Second World War. It was in Portsmouth, Virginia, Norfolk, Portsmouth. The place was loaded with servicemen from all over the world. French guys, English guys, British guys, American guys. Do you know how you know how responsive those guys were, scared out of their wits? I remember preaching one night to a bunch of those servicemen, you know, and I said, Isn't there somebody here who'd like to have Jesus in his heart and a guy on the first, first row? Stood straight up for that I would. <laughs> I've never had that happen since. But that's the atmosphere, you know. And I was in it. So along about the second week, there was a guy came to me and said, Would you uh give me a few minutes? And I said, Sure. He said, Get in the car. He took me downtown and bought me a pair of floresham black shoes. I'd never had that kind of footwear in my life. I thought they'd fit for a wedding. The next day, one of those guys came to me and said, uh, would you give me a few minutes? And I said, why, sure. We'll get in the car. He took me downtown and bought me a dark blue suit. And That night, I tried to get Elsie on the telephone. Couldn't get her. The next day, they had a reception for me, and I got five air shirts. I'll let you conclude what I looked like when I showed up for that meeting. But, uh, you know, when I left that thing, I was completely prepared. bathrobe, handkerchiefs. They outfitted me. You know, they took care of orphans and do you know the meeting closed on Sunday? It was Tuesday morning before I could get Elsie by telephone. So I got her on the telephone and said, honey, I got a dark suit. That was the first of December. And on the thirty first of December we got married. I remember standing at the altar in Broadway Methodist Church with my best man standing next to me, I was scared out of my wits. And standing there, and I looked back, and into the doorway came my father-in-law, six-foot-three, imposing figure. Elsie was on his arm. I took one look at her. I forgot about everybody else in the world. And as she came down that aisle, my father-in-law took her arm and shifted it, and she took my arm. And do you know she's been following me totally, forever, and unconditionally ever since? I'd hate to tell you how unconditional it is, but she has. And the interesting thing is I've got everything she (laughs) owns. It wasn't a great deal. (laughs) But isn't it amazing? I'm all hers; she's all mine, God says. Are you catching on? Now, I want to know if you're all his. And if you've come to the place where you think it's safe to be all his. You not only think it's safe to be all his. You wouldn't want it any other way. I don't want anybody else but Elsie. You hear me? Are you going to tell me that knowing Elsie is better than knowing God? (laughs) Knowing her is wonderful. But you know. Not even else is as good as God. And God said, "I'll give myself to you, the way Alpha gave herself to you. But I want you to give yourself to me, the way you gave yourself to her. Holy, His, forever, no conditions." And, you know, we've come to the place where we think that's sort of horrible. Am I wrong? Let me read you something. I've got to quit. Listen to this. Listen to this. In an address given to ministers and workers after his 90th birthday, George Mueller spoke thus of himself. I was converted in 1825, but I only came into the full surrender of the heart four years later, in 1829. Now listen to this. The love of money was gone. The love of place and position was gone. You know, I like to preach that seminary to He says, The love of worldly pleasures and engagements was gone. God, God alone became my portion. I found my all in him. I wanted nothing else. And by the grace of God, this has remained and has made me a happy man, an exceedingly happy man. And it led me to care only about the things of God. I ask affectionately, my brothers and my sisters, have you fully surrendered the heart to God? Or is there this thing or that thing with which you're taken up irrespective of God? I read a little of the scriptures before, but really preferred other books. But since that time, the revelation he has made of himself has become unspeakably blessed to me. And I can say from my heart, God is an infinitely lovely being. Oh, to be sat, oh, be not satisfied until in your own inmost soul you can say, God is an infinitely lovely being. And do you know Jesus died so I could have that kind of relationship with him? Jesus died to get the distance out. Jesus died to get the reservations out. Jesus died to get the hindrances out. Now, you know why the circumcision is significant to me? If you will read the 30th chapter of Deuteronomy, which, you know, comes right before the beginning of Joshua, And it's the last word on circumcision before you get to the passage where Joshua circumcises Israel. He says, let me read it for you. Listen to this. Turn to uh, uh, Deuteronomy 30. So you see it. Turn to Deuteronomy 30. When all these blessings and cursings I have set before you come upon you and you take them to heart, wherever the Lord your God disperses you among the nations, and when you and your children return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and with all your soul, according to everything I command you today, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes, have compassion on you, and gather you again from all the nations where he scattered you. Even if you've been banished for the most distant land under the heavens, from there the Lord your God will gather you and bring you back. He will bring you to the land that belonged to your fathers, and you will take possession of it. He will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. Now here, this is the text. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts, not your flesh. He will circumcise your heart. And the hearts of your descendants, so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. Isn't that a priceless text? God will circumcise your heart. He'll do a surgery in you so that you will love him with all your heart, with all your soul, and you will live. Now, I want to ask you listen through. Was the standard of what it meant to be a believer higher in Deuteronomy and Joshua than it is today? I know a lot of people who think they can be Christians with divided hearts and have conditions on their surrender to Him. How do I know? I've been there. (laughs) There's no question I knew I had been converted. But do you know what the standard's been always? Anything he starts in a human heart is to bring me to the place where he's the delight of my life. He's the joy of my soul. And where the greatest thrill that I get is total surrender to him. And say, Lord, I'm yours. And you're mine. For better or for worse? For richer or for poorer? In sickness and in health. To love and to cherish. The beautiful thing is. Death won't part us. It'll make it better.